This week, the United States is hosting the biggest political party in the Western Hemisphere. Leaders from across the Western Hemisphere are in Los Angeles this morning for the Summit of the Americas. It's the first time the U.S. has hosted the event since 1994. The Summit of the Americas convenes every three years or so. It's supposed to bring together all of the hemisphere's heads of state, though that's always been a bit complicated. But this year, there was even more drama than usual. The guest list wasn't finalized until just before the summit was set to begin. Some leaders are boycotting, and it's putting the whole point of the gathering into question. The summit intended to unify the Americas, now fueling fractures. So how do you have a summit of the Americas without all of the Americas? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Lucia Newman has covered Latin America for Al Jazeera English since the channel was created back in 2006. And I remember getting a staff-wide email from her years ago with a journalism-style rule. It's about who should be referred to as an American. I don't know if I remember the exact email, but I certainly know what I believe, and that is that Americans are anyone in any country that is included in North America, Central America, South America, and also the Caribbean. So when one calls the United States America, that's wrong. It is not just one country, it's any of the countries. They're all part of America. And as we'll see, that same issue, that gripe that others who are outside of the United States of America have comes up when it comes to this summit. So you have been covering the Summit of the Americas for decades now. Tell us, what is this summit usually about? What typically goes on? Well, this summit has evolved. The very, very first one was started during the administration of Bill Clinton. And the idea at the time was to forge a regional hemispheric free trade agreement with all the countries of the Americas, which would make the largest free trade bloc in the world if they could pull it off. That's what this new Partnership for Prosperity is all about, creating a free trade area that stretches from Alaska to Argentina. At the beginning, there was a lot of excitement about it, but then came a kind of a new left-leaning wave, a very anti-free market wave in some countries. Venezuela's President Hugo Chavez has denounced the United States as, quote, the biggest menace to our planet. Lula is a candidate of the working class, the first leftist president in the country's history. Evo Morales, Bolivia's first indigenous president, elected for another five years. So it didn't go very far, but they continued the heads of state to meet so this was, was a very, very big deal when they started all meeting together. At the time, Cuba was banned. The United States would not allow that country to be included. Here's former U.S. President Bill Clinton again, back in 1994. We support the Cuban people's desire for peaceful, democratic change. And we hope that the next time we have one of these summits, and the people of all the Western Hemisphere send their leaders here, a leader of a democratic Cuba will take its place at the table of nations. The rest of the countries began pushing and pushing and pushing until finally there was a summit 
when uh, Obama was president in Cartagena de Indias, Colombia, and they told him quite point blankly that it would be the last summit of the Americas without Cuba. Cuba was part of the region and it couldn't be banned for ideological reasons. Cuba's continued exclusion that year made the gathering quite tense. The president of Colombia at the time, Juan Manuel Santos, criticized U.S. policy towards Cuba at that summit. El aislamiento. Isolation, the embargo, indifference, turning away, have all already shown their ineffectiveness. In today's world, that's not a justifiable path. It is an anachronism that ties us to the era of the Cold War that was overcome decades ago. That was in 2012. But by the summit in 2015, U.S. relations with Cuba began to thaw. That was the first meeting where all the countries of the Americas actually did sit down with their heads of state at the same table, and that included, at the time, Raul Castro. So it was a very, very big deal. And as for the free trade agreements, it evolved into basically a very high-level meeting for the heads of state to discuss things that were important to all of them. Common problems, common goals, common challenges. So you have been to every single one of these summits except for two. Do you have any specific stories or anecdotes that come to mind? Oh, there, there were a lot of them. Let me, one of them was in uh, Buenos Aires when President Bush, George Bush Jr., was, uh, was there. And he thought he was going to be met with celebrations and applause. And there was practically rioting. It was the first time that a U.S. president was received that way in a Latin American country for a summit of this type. And what had happened is that Hugo Chavez, the president of Venezuela, had organized a parallel summit, a parallel meeting at the football stadium with all the sort of, quote, anti-imperialist, anti-American <laughs> groups, including Diego Maradona, the famous football star of Argentina. Viva Maradona! Viva el pueblo! The U.S. delegation could practically not make it to where the summit was taking place because of the people out on the streets throwing rocks and there was tear gas. It was a huge mess. And during the summit itself, the president of Argentina then started insulting George Bush and saying that Latin America was no longer the lackey of U.S. imperialism. It got really, really ugly. And many people thought that there would never be another summit of the Americas after that. But obviously, the summit has continued on. U.S. President Barack Obama promised a new relationship with Latin America in his first go at the gathering back in 2009. The United States has done much to promote peace and prosperity in the hemisphere. We've at times been disengaged, and at times we've sought to dictate our terms. But I pledge to you that we seek an equal partnership. And as Lucia mentioned, after that tense meeting in 2012, he normalized relations with Cuba in 2015. In 2018, the gathering was a bit of a washout after U.S. President Donald Trump declined to attend, along with several other heads of state. There was a hope that with Joe Biden, Obama's former vice president in office, there'd be a return to a more cooperative era. 
But that's not quite what happened. So this year, like many years in the past, there was some controversy about who made the guest list. Can you tell us what happened this year? The controversy about who's going to go and who's not going to go, who President Biden decided to invite and not invite, has become the main subject of the summit, and it wasn't supposed to be. And whether some of those people go or don't go is no longer the issue. It's the fact that three countries were not included. They were excluded specifically and explicitly by the White House, and we're talking about Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. In an interview with a Colombian news outlet in early May, the U.S. top diplomat for the hemisphere said that the president had been clear about countries who, quote, do not respect democracy, going on to say that he didn't expect them to receive invitations. The controversy had already been brewing. Several days before that interview, Cuba's foreign minister held a press conference, and in it, he had a question for his counterpart in the United States. I respectfully call on Secretary of State Lincoln to say, in an honest way, whether or not Cuba will be invited to the Ninth Summit of the Americas. He had basically raised the the red flag and announced what had not been made public really yet by the Biden administration, and that is that they were planning to prevent Cuba from going to the summit. The way that they put it, the Biden administration was abusing its position as the host and that it had no right to censor who could come and who couldn't come just because it was being held in Los Angeles. So why exclude the three countries? People I've spoken to, heads of state and foreign ministers all over Latin America, and they're saying it even on the record. They're saying that President Biden is caving into pressure because of upcoming midterm elections in the United States and that he doesn't want to antagonize the conservatives, especially those in Florida. And that faction has been especially vocal about what they think should happen. Here's Florida Senator Marco Rubio, whose parents both immigrated to the U.S. from Cuba. I don't think the United States of America should, frankly, be bullied or pressured into who to invite to a summit we're hosting. But bowing to the domestic pressure has led to international fiasco. As I said, in the past, fighting for Cuba's right to sit at the table had been such a huge demand on the part of both conservative and non-conservative countries in Latin America for so long that when Cuba finally did come back to the table, it was presumed that that would never be a point of discussion again. Lucia was in Havana when the Cuban foreign minister gave his April press conference. And shortly after, she sat down with his deputy, Carlos Fernandez de Cosillo to talk about it. He was really hoping that the Biden administration would backtrack and would change its mind. If you're going to call it a summit, you can call it a summit of a part of the Americas, but you cannot call it a summit of the Americas if you exclude some. You should not fear having frank dialogue, even when there are differences. And then came threats of boycott from the countries that did get an official invitation. The president of Mexico led the charge by basically threatening not to go unless the United States changed its mind. There have been long conversations for hours and hours between President Manuel López Obrador and President Biden. At the very last minute, 
or almost the last minute, we began to see some movement on the part of the White House. They began to make some very important concessions on the economic front to ease sanctions both against Cuba and against Venezuela. But still, the U.S. didn't budge on inviting the three countries, despite the threat from several more countries not to attend. The sense in the region is that this has been a step backwards. After all these episodes that I mentioned earlier of how things were improving, and it was becoming more inclusive, now it's becoming more exclusive. So I'll quote the Mexican president. He said, No one has the right to exclude anyone. How can you call it a summit of the Americas? Where are the excluded countries from? Another continent? Another galaxy? Another planet? Eventually, the governments of Nicaragua and Cuba said that they wouldn't attend even if invited, which in the end, they weren't. On Monday, U.S. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre confirmed that the governments of all three countries didn't receive invites. The president has to stick by his uh, principle. He believes that he needs to stick by his principles and not invite dictators. So Mexico's president, López Obrador, followed through with his threat and said he wouldn't attend. He'll send his foreign minister instead. So will Honduran President Xiomara Castro. For a summit meant to address common issues like migration, their absence will be noticeable. Lucia says the absence of the three excluded nations will undermine the summit too. The irony of this whole thing is that if the main focus is going to be migration, Three countries that are providing the flow of undocumented migrants, which is Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, are the ones being excluded. And is that something that some of these world leaders have acknowledged? Well, it's, it's obvious. The statistics are there. Six million Venezuelans. These families left Venezuela hoping for a new life in Chile. Back home, life had become unbearable. They say there's no food no jobs, and no future. There's an exodus of Cubans right now that's been acknowledged by the United States and by the Cuban government, the largest one since the Mariel boat lift crisis uh, back in the 80s. Nearly 80,000 Cubans crossing the southern border in the last six months, nearly five times higher than the same period last year. And now on track to outpace the mass Cuban exodus of 1980, known as the Mariel Boat Lift, that forever changed American history and U.S. politics. Lucia says there's been an exodus out of Nicaragua as well, thanks to a crackdown on opposition and economic struggles. But regardless of whether those countries are present, migration will be at the top of the agenda. The migration crisis by far is considered the most critical one at the moment that affects every country one way or the other in the region and that there is a sense that there has to be collaboration, cooperation. I spoke to the former Chilean foreign minister just yesterday and he was telling me that it's it's urgent. I think it's, uh, it's fundamental. That happened in Europe. It wasn't easy. They arrived at a system of quotas of migrants. And I think something similar could, could be explored, at least. What we're seeing now is that migration is not just going from south to north, as it was traditionally, towards the United States or towards Europe. We're seeing millions of migrants going south to countries in South America. 
Take, for example, the six million people who have left Venezuela. Colombia has taken in at least two million, but others have gone elsewhere on the continent. So this is a major, major issue for every country, whether they're receiving the migrants or whether they're providing the migrants. Everybody is, is, is feeling the pinch, especially after the pandemic. As we see, people now move from one place to the other. What happens to one sooner or later will affect those who are in a better place. Realistically speaking, how much actually comes out of these summits? What actually gets accomplished? It depends on the summit. The last summit, which was held in Lima, Peru, uh, was, I would say, not all that effective. Um, For one thing, President Donald Trump at the last minute decided not to go. But at others, it's an opportunity for the United States and Canada to get a closer sense of what is important to their Latin American neighbors and vice versa, because more and more Latin America is looking towards Asia and and much less towards North America as a trading partner and also in terms of influence. Russia has always sought influence in the Western Hemisphere as a counterbalance to U.S. prominence in the region. Mexico and China celebrating 50 years of diplomatic ties. Their economic ties have grown steadily over the years. In 2000, China represented about 1% of Mexico's foreign trade. In 2019, that figure jumped to 10%. So you can forge much better understanding and at least some agreements on some issues. So a lot of the predictions about what this summit will accomplish aren't looking too promising. Do you think that this idea of a summit of the Americas, the way that it's conceived right now, is useful for all the countries within the Americas? It can be more useful or less useful. It really, really depends on how sincerely all the heads of state are willing to to sit down and and, and have this dialogue and, and talk it out and not just wait for headlines and a photo op to, to do the trick. That's That's really the problem. Somebody said to me, and I don't want to quote him, he's another foreign minister, he said, I think uh, we understand, we feel sorry for President Biden, we know he's got a lot of his plate, we're not the priority right now, we can't compete with Ukraine or with the midterm elections. He means well, but meaning well isn't enough. That was the answer. This isn't something that is irreversible. Things could change, there could be another summit in three years and maybe the countries and the relationship will go back on track. But right now it is a step backwards, or at least that's how it's being seen. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai, with Ney Alvarez, Ruby Zaman, Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Adam Abugad and Aya Almilek are The Take's engagement producers. And special thanks to Manuel Rabalo. We'll be back.